This is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we'll start with breaking news that everyone was expecting. Former Governor John Hickenlooper is running for president. This morning, he announced he's joining the already crowded field for the Democratic nomination. In a short video, he talks about helping the state navigate tough times, natural disasters, a sour economy, a mass shooting. Then we beat the NRA by enacting universal background checks and banning high-capacity magazines. I'm running for president because we need dreamers in Washington, but we also need to get things done. Hickenlooper has a 16-year political track record in Colorado, starting as Denver's mayor. Well, CPR's Benta Berkland, Anthony Cotton, and myself have covered him for much of that time. And most recently, Benta and Anthony have followed him to Iowa. Thanks for being with us. Bent, I want to say that you broke this news for CPR early this morning, spoke with Hickenlooper. What stood out from your conversation? Well, here in Colorado, he's known for trying to build consensus and compromise on issues tackling the state, and he doesn't take hard ideological stances. And what's interesting is I asked him about being more of a centrist and how he would appeal to the more progressive wing of the Democratic base. He told me he doesn't consider himself middle of the road or moderate and consistently points to what he calls his progressive achievements. And I kept hearing the same thing everywhere, that people are frustrated about just all the talk in Washington without anything getting done. And I think our experience here in Colorado, both my eight years as mayor of Denver and my eight years as governor, really has been about bringing people together, getting things done, and creating real progressive achievements. In 2013, Hickenlooper did sign stricter gun laws, and as governor, he negotiated tougher methane regulations for oil and gas drilling. But during his two terms as governor, I don't think the word progressive is what would come to mind for most people. Mm. His critics on the left say he didn't get enough done and wasn't out front on issues when it mattered. He also used the word crisis to describe both the Trump presidency and the state of the nation, saying the U.S. is divided more now than at any time since the Civil War. And he really feels his business and political background leading a purple state means he can get something done in Washington. I just want to say that we played a snippet of Hickenlooper's new ad, and he says, we beat the NRA, referring to those two gun bills that passed after the Aurora Theater shooting. What he fails to mention is that it actually led to recall elections, and Democrats lost control of the state Senate as a result. Uh, Anthony, from your time with him in Iowa, how has he been trying to stand out in the crowded Democratic field? Yeah. And one thing I think that's important to note regarding Hickenlooper's sudden embrace of progressiveness is that he and every other person in this race are really running two races. So in the Democratic primary, Hickenlooper has to appeal to the more liberal wing of the party. Uh Then should he win the nomination, I think he likely would go back to kind of being more middle of the road and centrist And the idea that he's great at bringing everyone together to actually, as he likes to say, get things done. Most of the people that are running are from Washington. And they spent significant parts of their careers in Washington in the debate of words. And I understand we need debate, but we also need doers. And I'm someone who pretty much my whole adult life has been spent bringing together talented teams of people and then working with them to accomplish real progressive change. There's that word progressive again, but I see he's drawing a geographic distinction. I come from Colorado, not from inside the Beltway. 
Exactly. And th- and that's actually one of the things that Michael Bennett, who will probably get to talk about it at some point, he talks about how Washington is, is broken, and he's kind of one of the insiders. But that's kind of the core of Hickenlooper's stump speech. He talks about his personal story going from an unemployed geologist to governor, and then he recites a litany of actions that occurred during his two terms, including oil and gas and methane regulations to gun safety, specifically universal background checks. So this mixture of doer and just plain folks is really important for him, and especially in Iowa, because the caucuses are the the first big event in the race, and it winnows the field. And so basically, he has to succeed there to move on. Now, on the subject of oil and gas regulations, one activist told The New York Times this morning Hickenlooper has, quote, allowed oil and gas to run roughshod over communities. That came from Sarah Laughlin. She's a Democrat and heads the League of Oil and Gas Impacted Coloradans. She goes on in The Times to say, I think in the face of climate change, I'm looking for a president and a nominee that is a little stronger on the environment. Uh, Benta, you've certainly covered the oil and gas debate. What's your take on that? Some Democrats certainly saw him as too close to the energy industry. You know, for instance, he never backed an outright ban on fracking or some of the stricter regulations they wanted to see happen. And he's promoted himself in a lot of ways as a pro-business governor, trying to cut red tape and make government more efficient. Now that he's out of office, it's interesting. We have Democrats in charge of the legislature and a new governor, Jared Polis. We have a major change to oil and gas regulations being proposed right now. The measure was just introduced at the Capitol. It would give local communities control on where and how drilling takes place and make health and safety the top priority for state regulators. I really don't think we'd see that type of bill getting much traction under a Hickenlooper administration. I think that the view Governor Hickenlooper would bring to this, I asked him this question a million times interviewing him over the years, uh, he thought to a certain extent you ran up against the state constitution um, and you were talking about property rights here. Um, Yes, that's true. And, you know, he also didn't want to lose a lot of the energy jobs and Leading Democrats at the Capitol say they don't want to as well. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out this session. Colorado's economy is solid, and Hickenlooper was, uh, by all rights, a popular governor. The pollster Floyd Cerulli notes by the end of his term, he was among the 10 governors with the highest approval rating. Uh, But Bente, he also faces an ethics investigation involving travel and gifts. Hickenlooper says his office adhered to the highest standards. Where does that inquiry stand, Bente? Colorado's five-member Independent Ethics Committee unanimously voted last month to move forward with an investigation, and they'll look at whether Hickenlooper accepted free jet rides when he was governor in violation of state rules. The investigation is looking at just a small number of trips. Former Republican Speaker of the House Frank McNulty filed the complaint, and Hickenlooper said he thinks it's politically motivated and not valid. And Hickenlooper also says he either paid for these trips himself or the flights didn't have to do with his role overseeing state government or influence his policy decisions in any way. Anthony Cotton, you've been covering Hickenlooper's journey to this point. Uh, What's next now that he's finally announced his candidacy for president? Well, on Thursday, he's doing a pep rally in Civic Center Park in downtown Denver. And then he's back in Iowa for a couple more days. And after that, he's going to Texas, which is a new stop for him. A number of the candidates are going to the South by Southwest Festival. 
uh, it's interesting that he is uh, framing the Civic Center event as a send-off. When, which is interesting because obviously he's been there to Iowa a million times. Yeah. Uh, and right now, fundraising, of course, becomes critical. And I'll note that on his new website, Hickenlooper says he's taking zero corporate PAC money. Benta, Anthony, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. CPR's Benta Berkland and Anthony Cotton covering what we can now officially say is the Hickenlooper presidential campaign. And, of course, a second Coloradan may join the race. We're still watching what Senator Michael Bennett decides. Now, how the president is chosen is at the center of debate. Colorado is positioned to join other states in a push for the national popular vote to replace the Electoral College. That is the subject of CPR's political podcast, Purplish This Time, with Sam Brash. If you listen to the show, this won't come as a huge surprise, but I've been a politics dweeb for a long time. It's an affliction that dates back to when I was a teenager, and you don't have to take my word for it. Well, I really liked you because you really were interested in government, you were interested in politics, and you were interested in how it all worked. This is uh, my old high school civics teacher, Miss Edna Sutton. Can I just, can I keep calling you Miss Sutton? I wish you would. Okay. <laughs> Uh, So I had Miss Sutton my senior year, and at some point during her class, she assigned an open-ended research paper, told us to go forth and tell her something about American government. So I Googled around for a couple of hours, and I found out about this strange project. It was on the Electoral College. And by the way, here's an alternative, the national popular vote, which I'd never heard of. Yeah, and that alternative, like you said, was the National Popular Vote Compact. And and chances are you have heard about this over the last few weeks. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) But back then, 12 years ago, this still felt like something out of like a late night college dorm room debate or a a high school civics paper. Um, The basic idea is that the states would agree to pledge their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. And it would only go into effect once the compact had enough states to always decide the presidency. And like at that time, Ms. Sutton, where did you think the efforts did? Like, what did you see as its prospects? Well, at that time, I felt that it was somewhat unrealistic. Interesting, a curiosity, but unrealistic. Are you kidding me? Um, Because the Electoral College, to me, it was a reservoir of power for the small states. But since I wrote that paper, um, other people have become much more enthusiastic about this plan. And I don't think it's hard to see why. How improbable is this, what we're seeing right now, that Donald Trump has defeated Hillary Clinton to become president-elect? Hillary Clinton might not have lost everything. Secretary Clinton will likely win the popular vote for president. Hillary Clinton lost by getting more votes. Hillary Clinton's national popular vote lead over president-elect Trump has now surpassed two million votes. Much of that margin coming from heavily... Now, once all was said and done, Clinton won three million more votes than Trump in 2016. That's the largest popular vote margin ever for an electoral college loser. And as you probably know, this it was the second time in 16 years that a Democrat had lost the presidency despite winning the popular vote. Yeah. So it shouldn't be a huge surprise that Democrats have embraced this plan. And so far, 11 states have signed on, including New York, California, Massachusetts, and D.C. And according to you, 
The next one's Colorado. It looks like it. Yeah, the legislature has passed it through. Governor Polis says he plans to sign it. Only blue states have passed this so far. But if Colorado becomes the next state, we'd be probably the most, you know, like purplish state to join the compact. Well, Sam, tell me about this uh, national popular vote. Is it really viable or is it just a bunch of blue states getting angry and want to have things their way? Uh, that, Miss Sutton, is precisely the kind of question we try to answer on this show. So why don't you stick around and we can see if we can get an answer to that. Okay. Okay, Miss Sutton, you wanted to know if this national popular vote thing could ever work. Do I have that right? You do. Tell me if it's a fantasy or a practical policy. What do you think? Fair enough. Um, To do that, I think a good place to start is with the guy who came up with the entire concept in the first place. Uh, Sam, this is John Koza. I'm the chair of National Popular Vote. I should say Dr. John Koza. This guy is a Ph.D. computer scientist who spent a lot of time thinking about the Electoral College. In fact, in his 20s as a graduate student. We published a board game based on winning the presidency using the quirks of the Electoral College. Oh, an Electoral College board game? (laughs) That sounds kind of fun. Is it still around? Uh, We looked for some copies to see if we could buy it and play it online. We couldn't come across any. Uh, But he came up with this game way back in 1966. And uh, it's this massive map of the U.S. crisscrossed with dots and lines and different scales to measure electoral success. Koza says it was a total flop. Well, it was way too complicated, and uh, no, it was not a commercial success. So the game contained what Koza sees as the basic problem with the Electoral College. We talked earlier about candidates who have won the presidency despite losing the popular vote. The reason that happens are these winner-take-all rules, which just say... If you're ahead in a state, you get all of the state's electoral votes. So if you can find a combination of states where you're just barely ahead, you can get all of those states' electoral votes and become president... And uh, Koza says part of the problem is it means a lot of states go ignored. Each time around, as we definitely know in Colorado, candidates tend to only focus on a dozen or so swing states where even the smallest margin could get the whole block of electoral votes. And it's not only in the campaign. Every president is looking to be reelected. So every policy he executes is colored to some degree about politics of his reelection campaign. In other words, presidents play favorites with purple states. Koza says they get more federal grants, more environmental enforcement, and more waivers from certain laws. But uh, not all states have this winner-take-all system. Maine and Nebraska don't. Yeah, that's true. They use this different method where most of the state's electoral votes are split up by congressional district. And that's really important because it means that winner-take-all rules actually aren't in the Constitution. And Koza thinks that might be a loophole that could let states get around the Electoral College. Now, Sam, I'll remind you, as your teacher, your civics teacher, that the Electoral College is in the Constitution. Remember? Article 2, and the founders put it there for reason. And in case you need, I need to remind you again, I have my pocket constitution right here. <laughs> Do you just carry that with you wherever you go? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just happen to have a constitution on you? Well, you know, and you might be having a glass of wine, you know, and the bartender needs to know something. And then you can help them out. 
<laughs> no, this is good because you're right. The Electoral College is in the Constitution and amending it out would be really hard. But that constitutional language about the Electoral College might itself contain a way out of it. Um, can you read that section? All right. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2. Each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. Yeah, as the legislature thereof may direct. Koza realized those words are really important. The Constitution explicitly gives the states exclusive and plenary power to award electoral votes as they decide. That means maybe a state could give all of its electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. I guess I would want to know, in 2004, Colorado defeated yeah. an initiative to have proportional representation. If they defeated uh, proportional representation, why do you think they would move to this radical idea of doing away with the Electoral College? This <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, just to add some context, you're talking about this 2004 ballot initiative in Colorado that would have split up our electoral votes. And COSA did pay a lot of attention to this idea because it would have put an end to winner take all in a key swing state. So instead of being nine to nothing uh, for George Bush in that case, the electoral votes would probably have divided five for Bush and four for Kerry. But the problem was that Colorado voters hated this plan, and that initiative was resoundingly defeated. It was. I do recall that it was. Why would we give up the power, our power as a swing state, and, and our influence that it carries? Yeah, and, and Coza realized the same thing, that states were just going to give up their influence in presidential elections. So he thought about it, and he realized he needed a way for states to team up right, to pool their electoral votes together and give all of those votes to the winner of the national popular vote. And it just so happened he built a career on helping states do things together, really big things. Across the country, it's time for America's favorite jackpot game. Get ready, everybody. This is Powerball. Good evening, See, John Koza isn't just a guy obsessed with the Electoral College. He's also the brains behind modern state lottery games. Well, after I got out of school uh, in 1972, uh, I started a company called Scientific Games, which introduced the uh, rub-off instant lottery ticket. Koza's being a little humble here. I mean, he actually helped invent the scratch lotto ticket. Oh, my word. Is that right? <laughs> He's a pretty incredible guy. Um, and remember, states run lotteries, but the reason people can play big lottos like Powerball across state borders are these things called interstate compacts. Well, it's, it's just an agreement or a contract. What it says is that my state will do something that it wouldn't ordinarily do unless it knew that other states were going to do the same thing. Kosa thinks that interstate compacts could be a way for states to game the Electoral College. They could each pass laws pledging their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote, but those laws don't take effect until states having a majority of the electoral votes pass the very same agreement. A majority is 270 out of 538. 270 also being what's needed to elect the president. And Koza admits this is basically an end run around the Constitution. People like to use the word 
end run in sort of an insulting way, but uh, in football, an end run is a legal play, yeah. Oh, that doesn't sound right. Uh, it sounds a little devious. It's a little tricky um, because it doesn't get rid of the Electoral College, right? It uses it against itself to make it irrelevant. It's a hack and a really clever one. Now, Sam, you remember my class. I would give quizzes. But uh, I didn't call them that. No, you didn't. You had a different name for them. Yeah, I called them uh, quizzy poos, right? (laughs) Well, here's your quizzy poo. If this compact can pass in a purplish state like Colorado, does it actually stand a chance of becoming law? All right, I think that's a great question because we mentioned that for this compact to take effect, it needs 270 electoral votes, a majority of the Electoral College. Right now it has support from states representing 172 electoral votes, so it has 98 to go. And just to be totally clear, all of that support is from deep blue states, correct? Yes, that is correct. So the first state to sign on was Maryland back in 2007. Then it was New Jersey, Illinois, Hawaii, Washington, Massachusetts, and Vermont. And in 2011, a behemoth of a state signed on. California today became the eighth state in the nation to join a national popular vote movement. Rhode Island after that, and then another huge blue state. New York has become the latest state to join an agreement that would transform the way we elect the president of the United States. And then Connecticut was the last state to join in 2018. So Colorado would be the first inland purple-ish state uh, to join the compact. But I really think it'd be a mistake to think that means that this compact is gaining a broader appeal. Why is that? Well, I've watched this proposal move through the state capitol, and it's been an all-out partisan brawl. And to show you how, I want to take you to the last debate lawmakers had about this plan. Hello, everyone. (laughs) The House will come back to order. Colorado representatives stayed late at night, and they settled in for hours of debate about this bill. Mr. Randall, please read the title of Senate Bill 42. Concerning adoption of an agreement among the states to elect the president of the United States by national popular vote. And you had Democrats saying that this proposal would equalize voters across the country, give everyone an equal say in presidential elections, no matter where they live. Each one of you, each soul, each individual, each family member, each mom, dad, each of your votes is going to have the same impact in choosing who your president is. I respect everybody. And the Republicans? So not a single Republican supported this as Mm. it moved through the state capitol. And their main objection is that the Electoral College protects Colorado as a whole. And that gives rural Colorado a fair say in presidential years. We are one of those flyover states that we're talking about, and you might as well just kiss it goodbye. We are giving away the extra weight that our voice has in Colorado under the Electoral College. And it seems to me like we are offering to volunteer our votes to the population centers of the United States. And they routinely singled out a few of those population centers that people in this state love to bash on. They said a popular vote would give all of our power in presidential years to New York and California. So under the national popular vote, they're right. I mean, it would make the rural part of the country irrelevant. 
wouldn't candidates focus on cities like New York, L.A., uh, Houston? I mean, yeah, they might. Presidential candidates have limited time and resources. And under a popular vote, they'd probably focus on places where they could get the most votes. And Republicans say we know that because we see it on the state level. Governors are elected by popular vote. And in the last election, most candidates catered to the front range. In the last election, a blue dagger came down from the from the north and took in Fort Collins, Boulder, Denver, like that. And you elected a governor. And you announced he'd been elected before we counted the votes in my county. That's how much we matter. But Democrats countered that the Electoral College doesn't help all rural voters, just those lucky enough to live in swing states. In a system like ours, the rural states lose because none of the 10 most rural states in our country are battleground states. They say a popular vote means candidates would have to court individuals, not just certain states where the vote could go either way. You can't just talk about these high-minded arguments over our constitutional republic. At some point, it's also just going to be a bare-knuckle fight over who has and who gets power. Now, is it a partisan issue here, just here, Or is it across the uh, country? Um, Across the country, but that's kind of only happened recently. Pollsters actually track what the public thinks of the idea of a national popular vote for president. And before 2016, a sizable majority of both parties supported switching to a national popular vote. And then, of course, Clinton won the national popular vote and Trump won the presidency in 2016. And uh, you'll see right here, here is a chart of opinion after that. And you can see that Republican support in changing the system just plummets. I mean, does that surprise you? Not at all. It does not surprise me at all. Uh, Because so many of uh, the Republican states are the smaller states, and it is to their advantage. Okay, well, it's clear rural states have an advantage, and you can see that really clearly when you look at Colorado and Wyoming. Under the Electoral College, each state gets electors for all of its U.S. representatives and then another two for its U.S. senators. So that means while Colorado has 10 times as many people as Wyoming, we only have three times as many electoral votes. Um, But not all of the smallest states are Republican. In fact, a good share of them are blue, like Hawaii and Vermont and Rhode Island. That said, I mean, it's obvious that the Electoral College has benefited Republicans in recent elections. Do you think that explains why it's gotten so partisan? Uh, People are seeing the system uh, gives an advantage to one party or the other? I mean, I don't think voters are reacting to the math on this one. After 2016, you saw leading Democrats say it was time to get rid of the Electoral College. So I think it needs to be eliminated. I'd like to see us move beyond it, yes. There's a simple solution to it. We have to just abolish the Electoral College. It's not... Ocasio Cortez tweeting, quote, It is well past time we eliminate the Electoral College, a shadow of slavery's power that undermines our nation as a democratic republic. So it sounds like the Electoral College has polarized the nation. Uh, What does it mean for that national popular vote compact? So in the short term, it's probably good. Democrats won full control of some states last year, like New Mexico and Maine. And so those states could now join the compact. 
But swing states like Florida and Ohio have the least reason to sign on to this. For the compact to succeed, it would probably need deep red states, places candidates ignore because they're a sure bet for Republicans. And even if they ever did somehow reach that 270-vote threshold, there's this much bigger question of constitutionality. Supporters say states can award their electoral votes however they want, but some scholars think this plan just pushes that power too far. That means if the compact ever did take effect, this whole fight would probably just move out of the state legislatures and into the courts. Well, whatever happens, it's amazing to me that they got Colorado. We have been a swing state for a very long time, um, and we are heavily courted by presidential candidates. Do you think that we really will give up that power? Well, okay. so it looks like Governor Polis is going to sign this legislation, but that's not to say that it's a done deal. The legislature should not be giving away our electoral college votes without actually consulting with um, the voters of Colorado. This is Rose Puglisi. She's a Mesa County commissioner in Grand Junction on the Western Slope. And I'll be honest with you, since the national popular vote um, bill had been introduced, I get stopped on the street almost every day by constituents who do not want New York and California to decide where Colorado's electoral college votes go. And now she's doing something about it. She's leading a push to make sure that all Coloradans get the chance to vote on this national popular vote compact. And they're planning to circulate a petition to put a referendum on the 2020 ballot to just repeal this whole thing. So it's not a done deal. So the people will get a chance to weigh in on it. Yeah, the popular vote might be put to a popular vote. <laughs> Got it. Sam Brash with Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. You can listen to this and other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we bring it to you as well here on Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News.